Greetings, and welcome to CatastropheCast.com. My name is Walter, and today's topic is actually something that is bigger around the world than it is here in the United States, where this is being recorded, where I am, and that is trains. Specifically, the topic we're going to talk about today is one of the deadliest accidents in Germany's history, and that's the Eskede train disaster of June 3rd, 1998. So a little bit of background first, because we all know what a train is, but you know, for those of us that are here in the United States and not overseas and haven't spent a lot of time overseas, we don't know how big train travel actually is. So train travel is actually, you know, like I said, a lot bigger over in Europe and Japan if you think of Japan, you think it's synonymous, the bullet train. And Europe has the Eurail Pass. So if you've ever been a visitor of in Germ- over in you know Europe, Germany, France, anywhere over in Europe, there's the Eurail, pa- Eurail Pass, which you can take and, and use just about anywhere. It's, it's actually pretty awesome. The Eskede train disaster actually happened on an ice train, and the ice stands for Inner City Express. I actually have been on an ice train before when I traveled between Switzerland and Germany, and then back. The ice train itself is one of the fastest in Europe. It tops out at about 185 miles per hour, I believe it is. I think that is 320 kilometers per hour. Now you contrast that with the fastest train in in the United States, which is the Acela Express, that is an Amtrak train, but it goes at about 150 miles per hour. Or, in the complete opposite side of that, you've got the Shanghai Maglev train over in China, and that travels at a staggering 268 miles per hour. I mean, you're getting almost to the speed of a prop plane there. So, a little bit more background. Uh, rail density maps, if you take a look at rail density maps over in, the, actually throughout the entire world, you'll see that Germany, Belgium, and Switzerland have the most railways per square kilometer. So, per foot of track, or whatever the whatever the actual the measurement is, there is more of that per square kilometer in Germany, Belgium, and Switzerland than anywhere else in the entire world. Now, India and China, you know, we all know that they have more than a billion people each. They top out, you know, come out on top when it comes to uh, actually train service and the number of people who have been served. But Germany actually is comes in as a respectable number seven, uh, so they're in the top 10 and they have 82.4 billion passenger square kilometers traveled in one year. That's, that's pretty massive. So specifically this Eskade train disaster, it was, as I mentioned, an ice train and it was traveling as ice 884. That's, you know, just like American airlines has flight numbers. Alaska Airlines has flight numbers. Well, the trains have train numbers as well. So this was ICE 884. And ironically, I actually think it's a little ironic, quite prophetic. The train was actually called the William Conrad Rotengen, 
which, like I said, it's it's prophetic. If you know what the scientist William Conrad Ruttengen is actually famous for, um, I, of course, was a geek back... Well, I am a geek. I've always been a geek. And I know that, you know, Ruttengen was famous for x-rays. And that's actually going to come up later. Just keep that in the back of your head. The ice train... 884, was traveling from Munich to Hamburg with seven different stops along the way. It left Munich at 5.47 a.m. and was supposed to be in Hamburg by 11.20 a.m. It made its last scheduled stop, of course, before this disaster happened, in Hanover, Germany, at about 10.33 a.m. So, you know, it was less than an hour to go before they got to where got to Hamburg right before 11 a.m. there was a man who was in coach one with his family a wife and a son they were in coach one which is the very first coach right behind the power car most people don't wouldn't think of the first train car that that the one that actually is pulling the train you don't think of that as a power car you think of it as the locomotive well, on the ice train, it's called the power car. Anyway, he's sitting there right before 11 a.m. with his wife and his son, and something shoots up through the floor and through the armrest right between his wife and his son. He, he you know, they, of course, were freaked out. And he told his wife and he told his son, you know, why don't you go into the next coach? I'm going to go find someone so that we can actually, you know, figure out what's going on. Now, it's important to note, if you've ever been on a train or even just seen, you know, something filmed on a train, there are emergency brake that pulls, emergency brake pulls that anyone can actually pull in the event of an emergency. This man decided he wanted, you know, he, this weird thing popped up through the floor Instead of pulling the emergency brake, he said, I'm going to go find somebody to investigate. Well, the person that he went to go get to investigate decided, hey, we're going to go through and we're going to look to see what's going on. There's, you know, there's nothing urgent. I don't need to actually pull the emergency brake and actually stop the train yet. So they decided to go and investigate what was going on. Now, this was that... This person that he found, this conductor, he actually was the same one that had actually been reporting weird vibrations that had been coming from the train in the last few minutes. So that conductor, the families, there were several people that knew that there was something weird, a weird vibration they weren't used to that was coming from the train. Now, one thing uh, that I do want to say about the composition of these ice trains, they wanted to go as fast as possible, of course, so that they compete with what's in the air. The wheels that were developed for the ice trains actually were prone to vibrations when they got to the top speed. So what had happened was these designers decided to supplement the, the actual wheel itself with a piece of hard plastic around it. And that did really good in minimizing the actual vibrations as well as the noise. So, I mean, these were a huge selling point for the ice train. 
you know, if as long as you kept it in that that plastic boot, your 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 wheels wouldn't vibrate as much. There wouldn't be as much noise, and you'd have, you know, happy passengers that got to their destinations on time. So just about the time that this conductor is going to go and investigate what shot up through the floor in the power car, the actual conductor for the train had just gone under an overpass as you know, in, in many cities, doesn't matter where you are. If there is traffic, the railway is actually either sent above over the traffic or under. So there's some sort of overpass for the cars. Well, in this case, there was an overpass built for cars and the train went under it. So that conductor had just gone under an overpass and he said he felt a weird tug down the rail car. He looked back and the train actually was no longer following him. When he looked back, he saw just utter catastrophe erupting behind him. His car, along with the first two passenger coaches, so that's actually where the accident, you know, the thing through the floor happened and the coach behind it, those were still attached to his power car, but they weren't, that was it for the train. Instead of being 15 or so coaches long, it was just three coaches. He pulled the brake and that train actually stopped at Escadie Station. The time was 10.59 a.m. And at this time, the sleepy town of Escadie was about to be changed for forever. The scene that you, you saw when you came upon what happened was just a complete catastrophe. The thing that had jammed in the armrest in that first coach car had actually triggered the track to do a track switch. Now, a track switch is exactly what it what it sounds like. It's a switch that tells the train to go from one rail line to another. So if you've ever seen going into a train station, you will have maybe five lines coming in, five disparate lines, and then all of a sudden they feather out into maybe 20 different stations so that, you know, one train station, one train can come in, go to platform A, the next train comes in, goes to platform C. So that's what uh, a track switch is. It, it tells the train, you need, you need to get off of this track and go to that track. So that's that thing that jutted up through the floor, that actually told the train, hey, switch to another track. So that third coach car was, of course, now the very first uh, one to actually crash. And it was directed onto a parallel track by this switch. And that's how the derailment actually started. Car three was actually thrown into the base of the roadway overpass. Remember, this thing is traveling at 180 some odd miles per hour. So car three just go is, is the first to be directed or coach three is the first to be directed onto this parallel track and things just get worse and worse and worse. 
Now, uh, by the time car four gets there, right behind it, they have actually slowed a little bit down. I believe the estimates say they were at about 120 miles per hour. And it passes under the bridge right before that overhead collapsed. So the train, or I'm sorry, the overhead has actually been damaged, but it hasn't collapsed yet. And Coach Car 4 started, you know, came off the tracks and started tumbling down where the tracks, you know, along the tracks. There were actually two railway workers who were working on the track nearby. And this coach, as it, you know, just flew out of control, actually killed those two workers who were nearby, as well as taking out their car. Coach 5 made it halfway under the overhead bridge before the bridge absolutely collapsed. And when it collapsed, it collapsed all onto, part onto coach car number 5, but also onto coach number 6, which was the restaurant car. The surreal thing about this is that restaurant car, and actually most of the ice trains, they're about 3.9 meters in height. So that's 155 inches. When you think about it, the average person is what? Uh, well, I'm, I am five foot nine, so I'm just under 70 inches. So if you, you know, that's, that's more than two people tall. That had actually been decimated when the overhead roadway fell onto it to a height of six inches in places. That's, I mean, that's just absolutely devastating when you think about it. That's, that's no taller than your average smartphone standing on end to go from 3.9 meters all the way down to six inches. That's just absolutely amazing. Heartbreaking, but amazing. So now the bridge is completely down. The train is still going at about 200 kilometers per hour, so 120 miles per hour. And the remaining cars, including the first class cars, those were coaches 10 and 11, I believe they were. And then the real rear power car, they all slammed into the restaurant car and the other cars that had already been crashed or they smashed into the remains of that overhead roadway that was now on the ground. And they went at it at about 120 miles per hour. That's, you know, you're, you're coming to a complete stop. And that's just, that is just horrible when you, when you actually think about it. The witnesses on the scene actually say that the noises sounded like an airplane crash. And actually the first people who were on the scene to help right afterward, they actually thought it was a plane crash. Coach 3, which was, of course, the first coach to actually be in the accident, all the way to that rear power car, that all actually ended up in an area that was probably no longer than an actual coach itself. It was spread out over a large area, but the length of it was, they said, no, not much farther or not much longer than an actual coach. 
So this happened at 10.59 a.m. By 11.02, police had been alerted. And then when they realized the actual sheer enormity of the emergency, a major emergency was declared by 11.07 a.m. It was, I mean, it was, is, as you can imagine, just much too late based on just the fact of the, the sheer speed of this. In all, there were 101 people who were killed in the accident and 88 people were actually injured. So what happened? The search for what actually happened took quite a bit of time, but it also took quite a bit of distance. Remember I mentioned earlier about the shaking that was reported. That was actually about six kilometers back from where the accident actually took, took place. Investigators, when they went to this area, found part of that rubber boot that was supposed to help dampen the noise and you know provide some relief from the shaking. They found it basically imploded six kilometers back. And that is what set off this chain of events. Now, speculation as to what happened at the time, because of course, when there's an accident, people want to speculate. If they don't know what actually happened, they are going to speculate as to what they think happened. And speculation was that there was a car that actually caused the derailment. But that car that was found was actually the one that was owned by those railway workers who were killed in the crash. And that car had actually been mangled in part of the train itself in, I believe it was between coach four and coach five. So that theory was just thrown out. The investigation went on and on and it finally came out that the booted wheel, the, you know, like I said, the metal wheel that was fitted with the plastic boot to help with the noise and vibration had apparently actually never been tested at speed. It had never been tested because there was actually no facility that could actually test the design. So that's that's the first red flag right there. The other red flag is the only other times that these booted wheels had been actually in use were on a Hamburg City trolley system. They're the only other people who had used this booted design. And if you know anything about trolleys, well, I mean, a trolley is a very low speed train or rail that that is part of a city that makes frequent stops. It's very, very different than an ice train. So Deutsche Bahn, they were the ones, and they still are the ones, who actually run the ice train. They decided, you know, this this wheel, this booted wheel was perfect. It, you know, solved all of our problems. We're going to put it into production. It, you know, it never had any accidents because, of course, only the, you know, it, was, it wasn't being in use like it would be on the, on the ice trains. Uh, about a year beforehand, before this accident, the company that ran the Hamburg City Trolley, which is a company called Ulstra, they started noticing metal fatigue issues. And the metal fatigue issues were specific to the booted wheels that they were using on that trolley. And they realized that the metal fatigue problems they were having were 
causing them to swap out the wheels on a much, much more frequent basis than what they thought they were going to have to do. Now, like I said, these wheels are being used on a much slower tram. You know, it was running at about 24 kilometers per hour or 15 miles per hour. Ustra decided to notify others who were using this Buddha design for their wheel about a year before the disaster. And they did include Deutsche Bahn in the alert system. They told them that, you know, they were having problems and that they needed to be careful with their wheels. Deutsche Bahn actually said, hey, we haven't actually been experiencing any problems, so thanks, but no thanks. We don't have a problem. Now, remember when I said earlier that the name of the power car was the Rotengen? Now, uh, Rotengen was famous for discovering x-rays. And sometimes you actually need x-rays to uncover metal fatigue problems. If you remember United Flight 232, the DC-10 that crashed in Sioux City, Iowa, or Aloha Airlines Flight 243 that lost part of their fuselage of, while in flight above Hawaii, you'll know that those accidents were due to metal fatigue, you know, and sometimes it's only detectable by x-rays. Well, Deutsche Bahn had actually been using just flashlights for inspection in on their tires instead of what they were supposed to be using, which was metal fatigue equipment. Why would they do something like that? I mean, as low-tech as a flashlight instead of something for high-tech use for detect metal fatigue, it's because their metal fatigue equipment actually had produced way too many false positives, they said. But even the automated system that Deutsche Bahn used to test their wheels told them one week before this accident that the wheel was defective and it had to be replaced. Deutsche Bahn actually had not replaced the wheel yet. They just had not done it. So you would think that this automated test, it tells you, hey, replace this wheel, along with the fact that in the past two months leading up to the catastrophe, there were multiple complaints filed about excessive vibration and excessive noises coming from where that, that wheel had exploded. But Deutsche Bahn, like I said, absolutely did nothing. And as a result of them deciding to do nothing, 101 people lost their lives and 88 people were injured. Now, as I've said in the past, there is no such thing as a, you know, as something good about a disaster, but because a disaster is a disaster and any loss of life is bad, but there are two things about this this catastrophe that could have made it so much worse. The first, there was actually only about half of the people on that train that were actually possible. That train was designed to carry 651 people, but at the time there were only 287, so roughly half. The second is ice train number 787, which was a train going to Hanover, passed under that collapsed bridge just two minutes prior. I mean, could you imagine two ice trains in the same area 
and that thing happening, or if the if the the catastrophe happened, and then the second ice train came through the area, it would have been the same thing slamming into this overhead, this collapsed overhead roadway. It would have been much much worse. So they're actually really really lucky that this catastrophe wasn't more than it was. The heartbreaking thing that I keep coming back to about this is that that man who saw that piece of wheel jut up through the floor, you know, and into the armrest, he could have pulled the emergency stop, as could the railway worker that he found that was going to investigate it for him. Either man could have pulled that emergency stop, but neither did. The railway worker was actually arrested and put on trial for negligence because he did not pull the emergency brake, but he was actually acquitted, found not guilty, because he did not have the proper authority to actually pull it. So it wasn't something that he was, he had to absolutely do. For each part, Deutsche Bahn actually paid out the equivalent of about $30 million US. In the time, I believe Germany was still on the mark system. And so, and I don't know what the conversion rate, but it's about $30 million US to the victims of the accident and their survivors. Now, remember in Europe, like in our Spanish Alfacus disaster, people can be held liable and face trial, which you don't see more in the United States, but you do see elsewhere. Well, there were two Deutsche Bahn engineers who did face trial. They entered a plea bargain and ended up paying at about $12,000 in U.S. money in fines. And also as a result, the rubber-coated steel wheels that were on all the ice trains were actually switched out for a different type of wheel of a monoblock design, which did not have this problem. Now, when you think about it, 101 people killed is pretty high. I believe that's just about the same amount that was actually killed on that uh, United Air Flight 232 in Sioux City. 101 people, that number is, is, is pretty high. But it's actually not the largest death toll by a train accident in German history. There were actually two separate incidents, both on December 22nd, 1939, the first one, there were 101 people killed. And on the second, there were 278 people killed and 453 people injured. That is absolutely just massive destruction. And like I said, this could have been a much, much larger catastrophe than it was. Thankful that it was limited to what it was. So that's it. I want to thank you for listening. If you have questions, you can contact us by email at podcast at catastrophecast.com. You can connect with us on our webpage at catastrophecast.com or on Twitter. Our handle is at catastrophecast. Or you can come over to our new Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash catastrophecast. Thanks for listening.